Well, I was never really into college football until I went to college. And then freshman year, we got season passes to a season where the team went 1-10. and But ever since, it's been a fun sport to follow. And we're coming to the end of this season, which means that pretty soon the Heisman Trophy will be awarded. And even if you don't know much of all about college football, you've probably heard of the Heisman Award before. Since 1935, the Heisman has been awarded to the single most outstanding college football player, But what I find interesting about this award, though, is unless you're a quarterback or running back, you pretty much have no chance of winning the award. For the past 20 years, almost every single winner was a quarterback with a few running backs thrown in there. And so it goes for the entire history of the Heisman. You could be the the best kicker ever, the best defensive player ever, but you'll, you'll never get this award. It just goes to show that our society values more the guys who get the ball. They're in front of the camera, they get the attention, and so they're, they're deemed as more valuable. In reality, though, there's no such thing as a good quarterback or running back without a good offensive line. The guy's protecting him. If they're not protected, they'll, they'll never have a good season. And so it goes with the quarterback. If he doesn't have good receivers to throw to, he'll never put up good numbers. It just goes to show that football is truly a team sport. It takes everyone working together to succeed and And the work of all those guys who go unnoticed is just as valuable. The team could never win without them, and they're just as worthy of that award. The same goes, for example, for the movie industry. If you've seen Iron Man 3, for example, set the record for being at the movie with the the most crew ever at 3,310 people who put that movie together. But one person in that crew, the star, Robert Downey Jr., made... $50 $50 million. I get it. You know, the star is, is irreplaceable. The show can't go on without him. But in reality, it, it takes 3,300 other people to make that show happen. Yeah, they get their name in the credits. But in reality, our society really gives them no credit. We value those on top, those who stand out, those who are in front of the camera, who, who get the attention. They're given awards. They're given recognition. They're given more worth. That's just the way our, our society is. But this, this mentality becomes a real problem when it enters the church. This mentality is not foreign to Christian circles where those up front, the pastors, the worship leaders, the conference speakers, they get more recognition, more value, more worth. Everyone else is basically invisible and non-essential. Now, of course, that's not true, but when that type of thinking enters the church, you're going to have real problems. And the Lord didn't see it this way. Of course, pastors and teachers, they're going to get more attention just by the nature of their spiritual gift. They are in front of the congregation. But that doesn't mean they're greater. What makes any person great in the Lord's eyes is simply serving. Serving with whatever spiritual gift they have, whether that's in front or behind. Just by way of introduction, turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 this morning. This is a familiar passage where we learn from the Lord a completely different value system, a different sense of worth than the world. The world has always viewed the stars, the rulers, the rich and powerful as being greater. But not so with the Lord. In the context here, the disciples have been with Jesus for a couple years now. They believe in him as the Messiah. 
And so much so, they, they think the Messianic kingdom is coming any moment where Jesus will reign and rule on earth from Jerusalem. The disciples, at this point, they're still a bit short-sighted about the whole death of Jesus. And so regarding this coming kingdom, a pair of disciples, James and John, they want to be on top when this kingdom comes, and it's going to come any moment, they think. They want to be on top. They want to be great, and they see greatness as reigning and ruling with Jesus. Even their mother wants in on this family honor. So Matthew 20, look at verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. James and John, they're, of course, right there with her. And together they have the boldness to command Jesus to command that these two brothers will be on the top, the highest positions of honor next to Jesus in the kingdom. But, verse 22, but Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. James and John, they really have no idea what they're asking here, as their eyes were still veiled to the true nature of Christ's atonement. And accordingly, they they still don't know what true greatness is all about. They're a product of their society, thinking those on top are the greatest, those who reign, who exercise authority over others, They're greater, of course, and they want to be great. The other disciples, they really feel the same way. They're just upset because James and John got to Jesus first. But Jesus had other ideas. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here Jesus completely flips the cultural notion of greatness, of what it means to be great. Every society has viewed those in power as great. That power can come by authority, position, money, whatever it's going to be, but those who hold this power and exert power, they're great. But Jesus reveals God's standard, where God alone is the Almighty One, and those whom God views as great are those not who are served, but who serve others. Christ was setting out to create a new people, a church, that would be marked by this humble selfless, sacrificial service. Yet he wasn't asking them to do anything that he wasn't going to do first. Indeed, Jesus was himself truly great, but he himself did not come to be served. If anyone had the right to simply come and just be served automatically by all creation, it it was Christ, but instead he came to serve. And that, that really says enough about the nature of true greatness 
and the value that the Lord places on service. Our society tends to think little of those who serve, of servants. Every society pretty much has looked down on the servant. It was Plato who said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? But Christ himself teaches us that it's greater to serve than to be served. This is God's value system, which he evidenced in sending his son to serve us, to die for us, to bear our sins, to grant us forgiveness, that we might receive eternal life and new life. And now being his church and his body, we are called to follow him. And that includes following his model of servanthood. God's self-giving love is, is expressed in the giving of his son to die for us, to pay for our sins, to, to redeem us. And we're now called, being so redeemed, we're now called to manifest that love to the world by our service. But now, now we serving others. We are to, in a way, incarnate the hands of Christ as we serve others and meet needs. And, and this is how, this is one way we showcase the glory of the gospel. In fact, God has such a high view of service that of the two offices in the New Testament church, one of them is just, that's, it's all it's about. It's about meeting needs and serving others. And I'm talking about the, the office of deacon. All of us are called to serve one another, but some are especially gifted. And so the New Testament recognizes a class of servant leaders in the church who are marked by a ministry of helps. They're known as deacons, and we aim to learn more about them this morning. So let me give you a quick word of context. This church, our church here, Berean Bible Church, we've not had a, any, any formal deacon ministry in some time, in, in many years. But as we are growing, so has the need for deacons. Certainly people have been functioning as deacons at this church, doing the work of, of a deacon behind the scenes, helping meet the, the material needs of the church. But there's been no formal recognition of deacons. That said, we want to make an effort in the upcoming new year to restart a deacon ministry, which will involve recognizing some qualified members as deacons by title. Now, I believe this is important to do, not that we're giving praise or glory to these people, but recognition and awareness, such that the church knows those who are serving in, in various capacities. We actually see this kind of reflect, uh, recognition reflected in a few passages. As you know, we just finished preaching through Philippians. And it's in Philippians, in the opening verse, that's the one epistle, the only one where Paul greets the elders and the deacons by title. And it's obvious there was an awareness in the Philippian church of who the elders were, and there was awareness of who the deacons were. We likewise believe it's time to, in a way, formalize our deacon ministry just to bring a similar awareness to the church of those who are serving in these various ministry capacities. So we'll talk more in the future about what that process will look like. But first, I figured it would be good to give a message or two on the nature of deacon ministry. What is it? What's it really all about? How is it defined? How do they operate according to the New Testament? I want to explore scripture this morning and just learn more about what this second office of the New Testament church is all about. So that, that's our goal for today, just to expose you to the nature of 
deacon ministry from Scripture this week and next week. And to help frame this discussion, I think maybe a little Q&A format would, would help. And so let me give you seven questions about deacon ministry answered from Scripture. Okay, let me leave it simple as that. Seven questions about deacon ministry answered from Scripture. And we'll do the first four today, the, the last three next week. Number one, what is a deacon? Just in general. What, what does the word even mean? What is a deacon in general? The word deacon is derived from the Greek word uh, diakonos, which means servant or minister. You put these words together, get a pretty good idea of what a, a deacon was all about, a, a ministering servant. The etymology is uncertain, but some believe the word is derived from diakonis, which means kicking up dust. And the picture is someone who's so busy that they're just kicking up dust everywhere. They're, they're a busybody. They're, they're working hard. They're, they're serving. The Greek word for deacon covered a, a variety of servants from waiters to stewards to messengers to temple attendants. Most of the time this word is used in the New Testament. It simply means just a servant kind of in general. Many times it's just like, like the table waiter in, in John 2 at the wedding of Cana. He was a deacon. He was a servant, so to speak. Many times it simply means a minister, someone who, who ministers to other. And it's in this regard that Timothy, Tychicus, Epaphras, Paul, and even Jesus are called deacons or ministers in the New Testament. Now, don't confuse that with the office of deacon. That's just the word used to describe one who serves, one who ministers in general. But now let's ask question two. What's a deacon in the church? Just more specifically now, what's this category of deacon in the church? So this word, diakonos, started off as a general term for one who serves, one who ministers. But by the end of the first century, in the early church, this word already became a technical term to refer to the, the special class of, of servants in the church, this office in the church, the office of deacon, in contrast to the other office of the church, the office of elder. Now, it was later on in the second century and beyond that the church saw a threefold division of government, you could say, with elders and deacons and bishops. The bishop or overseer began to exercise more power and he kind of took authority over the other positions and ruled the church. And later on, even more classes were, were added or changed by the Catholic Church. And they got around to reviving the priesthood and adding things like cardinals and popes and nuns and friars and, and more. But in the New Testament, it's actually very clear there's, there's really only two lasting roles for the church's leadership structure. And that's elders and deacons. That's it. There's just two, elders and deacons. Since the apostles and prophets, they laid the foundation of the church, that having been laid, that the work, the ongoing work of establishing and caring for the churches passed on to the elders and the deacons. Now, regarding elders, just for a quick note here, perhaps some of the confusion comes from the fact that Three different words are used of this position in the New Testament. The catch is they're used interchangeably. They're all referring to the same office. We just call them elder. But you've got one word, episkopos, like in 1 Timothy 3. The word we get episcopal from, it simply means overseer. 
one who oversees the church. This word was later translated into bishop in English. There's also the word presbyteros. We get the word presbytery from. This word is translated into elder, as in 1 Peter 5. And then there's the word poimen, which means shepherd or pastor, like Ephesians 4. And so anyway, you've got these three terms, but they're all used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same figure, the, the elder pastor overseer. We typically just use the word elder, but you could equally label this office as overseer or pastor. These leaders are charged with the general spiritual oversight and shepherding of the church. And so famous, for example, is Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul charges the Ephesian elders with the task of shepherding the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. These are the shepherds of the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 makes clear, though, that some of these elders or pastors will excel in the preaching and teaching of the word, and therefore they're said to be worthy of double honor. This is the origin of, of the full-time or the staff pastor that we might call him today. Now, that's just a little bit of context. And by comparison and contrast now, we can better understand the other office, the office of deacon, which is obviously distinct from this office of elder. So let me just read 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Paul then goes on to list a bunch of character qualifications for elders or overseers. But what's interesting, though, down in verse 8, like we read this morning, without skipping a beat, he says this, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, so on and so forth. We'll look at these deacon qualifications later. But the clear indication is that by this time, Paul viewed deacons as a separate category, a separate office in the church, so much so that they were worthy of their own list of character qualifications. And that's what we get. They have their own little list of, of qualifications. And as I pointed out earlier, Philippians 1, verse 1, which was written about AD 62, Paul specifically greets the deacons in the church. So like I said, by, by the second half of the first century, it appears that deacons were being recognized as this formal or at least semi-formal ministry or office within the church, an additional office next to the, the elder, pastor, overseer. Now I know this, this still doesn't tell us much about the nature of deacons, but it's a good start. We're, we're building a, a framework here. Let's keep exploring deacon ministry with another question. Number three, how did deacons originate? How did deacons originate? Where did this really come from? And a good place to start is Acts chapter 6. So turn there, actually. Why don't you take your Bibles, turn now to Acts chapter 6. Some believe the idea of deacons originated with the Hazan of the Jewish synagogue. This was a figure who had many duties. He opened and closed the building, kept it clean, passed out books for reading. Now, the office of elder definitely had some underpinnings with Israel's elders in the Old Testament, but there's, there's really no real connection between New Testament deacons and really anything in the Old Testament. 
Rather, deacons originated organically based on need. And Acts 6, in a way, tells their origin story. Now, granted, this is not the origin of the formal office of deacon within the church. That developed over time as the needs of the church grew. But Luke includes Acts chapter 6, and he features it prominently in his account for a reason. And that seems to be to to tell us that the beginnings of this office and to give us a bit of a, a blueprint, a framework for what deacons should do. So here's the situation of Acts chapter 6. He starts in verse 1, and he says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. And stop there. It's already an understatement, because the church, it really started off with a bang. Pentecost marked the official beginning of the church. Right after that, Peter preaches that first sermon, and 3,000 are saved. More are added each day. Another sermon comes. Another 2,000 are added. But keep in mind, almost surely these numbers reflect only the men or the heads of household. That's how they numbered people back then. So in reality, that this early church, after a little while, the Jerusalem church was likely in the range of 10 to even 20,000 people when you had all the women and kids. So that's a lot. That's a lot of growth in a very short amount of time. You know, for example, I think it was the summer of, of sixth grade for me, when I think going from sixth to seventh grade that summer, that's when I had my growth spurt and just shot up real tall and lengthy. And I, I grew too fast too soon, though. And so I was diagnosed with something called osgood Schlatter disease. It sounds way more serious than it is. It's, it's not that bad. But it's just pain, growth pain around the knee. The thigh muscle pulls on the tendon that connects the kneecap to the shins and just grow too fast, and so it it hurts. And so I basically, I just grew too much too fast, and it caused some growing pains. And the early church, they were growing too much too fast, and they had their own growing pains. And their growing pains are described in verse 1. So again, back to verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So first, you need to know a few things. First, these these Hellenistic Jews, who are they? What's that all about? Well, these were Greek-speaking Jews. Anytime you see that word Hellenistic, just think from the Greek world there. They were basically Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced Jews. They lived outside of Jerusalem, not in the hometown. Remember, though, during the Feast of Pentecost, when the church began, you had all these Jews from all over the Roman Empire that had come to Jerusalem for the feast. And many, during Peter's preaching, were converted. Many of these Hellenistic Jews were converted to Christ at Pentecost. And we know that some of them decided to stay in Jerusalem. They didn't go home. They came for the feast, but they just stayed because they wanted to learn more of the apostles' teaching. At the same time, though, so you had these Hellenistic Jews, part of the first converts. You also had many native Hebrews, like Jerusalem locals and people from Judah who were converted at the same time as well. So the early church, the very first church, which, remember, was entirely in Jerusalem, the very beginning. It consisted of only Jews. Some were Hellenistic Jews. Some were native Hebrews, and they were together in the church. But this was 
kind of a problem because although they were all were now Jewish Christians, they were culturally divided. You probably already know the Jews in Christ's day, they hated the Gentiles. Any non-Jewish person they hated. They, they referred to them as dogs, which was the epitome of an unclean animal. Well, these, these pure Jews, the native Hebrews, they also held in disregard these Hellenistic Jews because they had compromised. The Hellenistic Jews, these were the guys who were scattered all over the ancient world, and they had taken to adopt the culture and the language of wherever they ended up in the Greek or the Roman world, living and speaking like, like the Romans. And to the pure Jews, though, this was an ungodly compromise. And so in many ways, they regarded these Hellenistic Jews as, as unclean. They're just, just like the Gentiles, pretty much. And so you have this background in mind. You have to realize there was, there was in a sense, a real prejudice and racism inherent to ancient Judaism. And it's not surprising to learn that some of it carried over wrongly into the, the early church. There were incidents where these traditional Jews, they had trouble loving those who were different from them, even though they all were now one in Christ, that the dividing wall had been taken down, they were one, but they still had all this baggage of prejudice in their, in their lives. So here in verse 1, that was a long intro, but that's what's going on. You've got these, these widows of the Hellenistic group, and they're being overlooked, seemingly, in, in the daily distribution of food. Whoever was distributing the food was seemingly playing favorites and, and showing that prejudice against the Hellenistic Jews. All right. Now, you also need to know just a little bit more background on this distribution of food. What's that all about? Well, keep in mind the early church situation was unique. Again, like I said before, many Jews, they decided to stay in Jerusalem after converting to Christ. They didn't return home. They wanted to sit longer under the apostles' teaching. But this created kind of like a, a mini humanitarian crisis. Because now, how is this new church going to house and feed all these new believers who decide to stay? It was actually a big problem in that first era. Well, what happened was some wealthy new believers, they decided to sell their belongings, sell their land, give the proceeds to the apostles, whom then distributed it to all these new people just to meet all the needs of the new church, which were thousands of people. We see that take place in Acts 4, 34 and 35, which reads, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each person as any had need. These wealthy believers weren't doing this just for the fun of it. They were doing this because there was a real humanitarian crisis, so to speak, in the church, all these new believers who needed to be cared for. And so they, they stepped up. Now, this was a good thing, but it was also a massive administrative task to collect, process, and distribute all this, this food and money. That, that was a big job. That took a lot of time and, and, and effort. So now you've got the context. It's in this context that this complaint arises in verse 1. Whether it's intentional or not, some widows of the Hellenistic group were being overlooked in this daily distribution of food. Widows especially would have been in need. No, no way for them to make a living on their own in that culture. So the church was rightly taking care of them. 
But just in general, this administrative task of caring for all these people was becoming just too large for the apostles, who were basically in charge. It was taking them away from their primary duties. And so now, long story short, they just they needed help. That's the story. Now look at verse 2. It says, So the twelve, the, the twelve apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God to serve tables. The word serve here is the verb form of deacon, a diaconeo. It refers to serving tables. That could be banquet tables or money-changing tables. And the task of caring for the physical needs of the early church included both distributing and preparing both food and alms. This was important work. But at the same time, the church was going to suffer if the apostles neglected their primary ministry for long, which was to make disciples by preaching the gospel. They could not afford to neglect their great commission for for too long. And as they said, it's not desirable for them to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, don't misunderstand. They're not saying that it's beneath them to serve tables or to meet needs or or even that it's not part of their job. It, It is. But for them to serve these thousands of people, it meant they had to neglect the word of God, the ministry of the word. And that was not good because that was their primary ministry. Simply put, they needed help. And so the apostles decided to tap into the congregation that they could nominate some qualified helpers. So verse 3, Therefore they said, brethren, select from among uh, among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. Now here there, there's nothing magical about the number seven. It just was a, a good number, a reasonable number for the task at hand. These had to be men of a certain character though. They had to come from the congregation, so obviously they had to be believers. They had to have a good reputation known by those outside the church to be faithful and godly. They had to be full of the spirit, displaying the fruit of the spirit and the work of the Spirit in their lives. And they had to be full of wisdom, evidencing wisdom and decision-making. And so those who were qualified would be put in charge of this task. The responsibility of meeting the, the daily needs of the church would be handed over to them. And in turn, the apostles would be freed up to devote themselves more to prayer and the ministry of the Word. As shepherds, that was their primary calling. So, so far, so good. I trust you get it. There's a quick side note, though. This passage, in general, also really speaks to the priorities of of the shepherds of the church. As important as mercy ministry is, and it is, it, it should not be neglected. Shepherds are primarily tasked with feeding the flock spiritual food. Eternal matters come first, and therefore, prayer and the ministry of the word, those are the top two priorities of the local church's shepherds. And so know for certain if there's any pastor or elder who is not devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word, he's forsaken prayer and the ministry of the word, then he is not functioning biblically. Now just to finish this this little passage, look at verse 5. 
It says the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. So the congregation liked the idea. They nominated seven men who were qualified. The apostles then verified and affirmed these men. Keep in mind, the decision here and the authority still rested with the apostles. It was the apostles who brought this whole thing to the congregation in the first place. The congregation had a a nominating and and a verifying function, but the apostles had that that final say of approval. But having approved, these seven then took charge of this mercy ministry. So in all, this this passage, it helps give us just a, a basic framework of understanding deacon ministry. These seven, we could call them, you know, proto-deacons, early deacons. This passage, it's more like a rough sketch for the office of deacon. It's not the formal beginning or anything like that. But Luke devotes much attention in Acts to the, the beginning of the church's leadership, from apostles to elders to deacons. Also, the verb related to deacon is used here. And although it would take time for the office of deacon to solidify we can already glean from Acts chapter 6 just the basic nature of this deacon ministry. These were people raised up in times of need to to share the the burden of of taking care of the material needs of the church, to meet the daily needs of the church. And later, deacons would follow suit by just finding and meeting the, the material needs of the local church. Now, just to to add one more question here for our time this morning, get a little bit more specific. Let's go with this, number four. What is the role of deacons? Just more specifically, what is the role of deacons? Now, the challenge here is there's no simple verse that gives a, a mission statement or a purpose statement of deacons. Rather, the picture is that the role or the office grew Gradually, time by time, as the early church grew, it was need-based or need-driven. And as you get the picture of that as the needs of a local church grew too large for the elders to, to handle, deacons were raised up to take care of the material side of things. For example, there's an interesting contrast that we find in 1 Timothy and Titus. You have these two epistles where Paul is writing letters to two of his younger ministry partners. First Timothy was written to Timothy as Timothy was shepherding the Ephesian church. And Titus was written to Titus as he was establishing lots of tiny little churches on the island of Crete. Now in First Timothy, Paul gives Timothy detailed qualifications for elders and deacons. But in Titus... Paul only gives detailed qualifications for elders. And the lists of elder qualifications are very similar, so it just begs the question, why didn't Paul give Titus a similar list of deacon qualifications? The answer might be found in, in the stages of development of these churches. In Ephesus, where Timothy was, by that time, that was a larger, well-established, relatively mature church And surely the ministry demands there had eclipsed the capabilities of the elders. 
And so deacons were needed in that larger church to share the ministry load so that the elders could continue to devote themselves to the word and prayer. But on the island of Crete, where Titus was, he's dealing with all these brand new, tiny baby churches. And Titus's job was to appoint elders in all the churches. And most likely, at first, the elders would have been able to, to do all that was needed in these churches. Deacons weren't needed because these were small, brand new churches. So with this consideration, plus what we learned from Acts chapter 6, it just leads us to believe that, that deacons were more of a, a need-driven ministry, a, a needs-based ministry. The elders, pastors, overseers, they're the primary shepherds of a local church. And it's essential for these men to be put in place in all the churches. But deacons were, were needed only when ministry grew, such that the elders would be taken away from the word and prayer. Now we can learn a little bit more about these roles from just the titles used, the words used. For example, you know the terms elder, pastor, overseer, that, that tells us something about what these men do. They watch over, care for, shepherd the church. This is a shepherding role. Well, the term deacon, that tells us something too. The fact that the early church took this word for servant and later applied it as a title for this office, that, that kind of tells us enough right there that this is a serving office. It's all about serving and meeting needs. The church has one primarily shepherding office and one primarily serving office. But still, can we get any more specific with the actual tasks these deacons would have assisted with? And we can. In the New Testament, the term for deacon seems to maintain its connection with the supply of material needs and services. kind of always stays right there. So in Acts 11 and 2 Corinthians 8, the word is used of the distribution of money to the poor saints in Jerusalem. In Luke 10 and Mark 1, the word is used in connection with serving food. Then in Matthew 25, verse 44, this word is used in connection with, with everything. Serving food, clothing the needy, caring for the sick, visiting the prisoner. And historically, this is how deacons operated in the early church. They met all of these practical and material needs of the church so that the elders could meet those spiritual and, and eternal needs of the church. Historically, deacons were involved in serving tables, distributing food, administering communion, and feeding the poor. Now, what you have to keep in mind, though, is, again, things were quite different in the early church. They had no supermarkets. There were no fast food chains. Starvation was a real threat, and just gathering food was a real challenge. And so, of course, there were many in need who just had no food. And the, the church rose up to care for those who were, like, literally starving. But back then, you have to understand, that was like a full-time job. It was like a full-time job. You would have benevolent church members who would donate money and food to the church. That needed to be collected and received and distributed to those in need. When it comes to food, it had to be gathered and then prepared and then served. It's like running a restaurant, basically. And it was like a full-time job to just feed all these people. But understand that this side of deacon ministry is, in a way, largely obsolete today, simply because our society doesn't struggle to prepare and distribute food. 
For example, we, we have supermarkets. We have gift cards. So if needed, if you had to care for a starving believer, it would be a lot easier. You just take them to a restaurant or give them a gift card. It's not going to require a full-time job. And that's what happened with these deacons. The elders passed this work of feeding the poor in their church to the deacons. But that side of ministry is largely obsolete today. It's just society has changed. The same goes with visiting the sick. Historically, in the early church, the task of visiting and caring for the sick passed from the elders to the deacons. That might sound strange to you because people today have an expectation that the elders and pastors will visit them in the hospital, and and we certainly do that. I think that's appropriate. But again, you have to remember that in the early church, we're talking about a culture that had no hospitals and no real health care. So if you get sick... It's up to your loved ones to take care of you, pretty much. And if you're in the church, well, the church would, again, show this mercy by by being the loved ones to take care of their sick. But again, that's like a full-time job. Because to to care for the sick, to attend for all their needs, to nurse them back to health. We're not talking like today, a 30-minute visit in the hospital to encourage someone. While the doctors and nurses do all the real health care. Back then, you were the doctor, you're the nurse, you're doing all the health care, you're nursing this person back to health. It's a full-time job, and that became the work of the deacon. But again, this side of deacons has largely been made obsolete today because we have doctors and health care and so forth, hospitals. But that being said, deacons in general are not obsolete today. There are, are many ways where they can step in and fill and help with the material and and physical needs of the local church. Fitting a historical role, deacons today should help with the church's finances. Deacons are needed to partner with the elders to receive and distribute the local church's giving, to keep records, and to help with modern-day finances. It really is a perfect example of of an important, necessary task of a local church that deacons can help with to free the elders to be more devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. The same goes with long-term visitation. Elders and pastors, they they should visit the sick. But if anyone needs long-term care, care that their family or the hospital can't provide, like shut-ins, this would be a perfect place for deacons to to rise up and, and help. This would include caring for widows indeed, those who are widows who have no family members and not much income, where deacons would just commit to being a full-time helper to those people in the church. Widows indeed is a special category in the church, and deacons would help with that. There's also one way where deacons can serve today that, that they didn't serve in the early church, and that's with facilities. You know, the early church didn't really have buildings because of persecution. That's like putting a target on you. Buildings came a little bit later. Now, buildings don't make the church. We know that. But they sure do facilitate the the gathering of the church and and the activities of the local church. But it requires a lot of time and energy and effort to upkeep and maintain a facility. But this would likewise be a perfect place for deacons to serve. Keep in mind, they're not just the the taskmasters of the church or the the simple servants. This, This is still spiritual service. And they are called to be qualified for a reason with spiritual qualifications. But 
the, the big picture is they take over all the necessary yet material and physical needs of the church that to serve the local body. And these are just a few examples. There's really many ways where deacons can help with the church today as it exists in its modern form. All right, well, we've got a few more questions to go. Important questions like, can women serve as deacons? But we'll save those final questions for next week. We'll do a second parter. Hopefully you're grasping that the big picture, that deacons were raised up to support the church and its shepherds, assisting in key tasks to meet the needs of the body and to free up the elders to be devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, it's true, most deacon work goes unnoticed. They're not on stage. They're not in front of the congregation. They're working behind the scenes. They're never seen. They're not in the spotlight. But understand, it doesn't mean it's a lesser ministry. Deacons, in a special way, reflect the heart and the life of Christ himself who came to serve. And we're called, all of us, to reflect the gospel by serving one another. But hopefully already this morning, this gives us just a greater sense of appreciation to God for those who are called and raised up as deacons, those who assist the local church in in a special way. We should give the Lord special thanks and recognition to those who serve us in that capacity. And we want to do that as time goes on. Well, there's more to learn, more to come. We'll get to that next week for now. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we are thankful to you for being a God who who serves and who loves. And you show that love by giving of yourself and giving of your son who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Lord Jesus served us in the ultimate way by the giving of his very life unto death and bearing the wrath of God for our sins that we could know forgiveness and new life and eternal life. We are those who have been greatly served and bought with a price. And now, Lord, we are your servants, all of us. As we follow Christ, we are made servants, bond servants of the Lord Jesus. And we pray you make it our delight to serve. Many of us are likewise products of a culture that, that views servants as lesser and the rich, the powerful, as greater. But may we let Christ himself define reality for us, that, that the one who's greatest among us is the one who, who serves. And so may we be like him. Give us all a heart of love and service that seeks to put the needs of others ahead of our own, that we would reflect the gospel with our very lives, that the world would know the self-giving service and love of Christ himself. Bless us in these things and and those in the future at this church who would be raised up as deacons, we we pray you just bless them and and, uh, enable them to serve this local church in many important ways. We're grateful to you, Lord, for all this. We look forward to more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.